Father Timothy Gallagher, welcome to Power and Witness podcast. You just gave us a fantastic retreat and just wanted to ask you some more questions and maybe try to present some of the material uh, to our listeners because you gave us a, a retreat on the, the rules of St. Ignatius and uh, the discernment of spirits. And let me just say one thing. I thought it was fascinating, your recap of his life and uh, could you hit some of those high points for us again that uh, you think is kind of more salient points than others maybe about his life? Well, it, it is a good place to start. And uh, it is interesting, but it's also uh, the moment in his life when this whole teaching on discernment was first born. So that the 14 rules for discernment that we went through, uh, this is how they originally came to be. The, the first insight here. So until the age of 30, he, it's pretty much an Augustine story. So he never doubts his Catholic faith, but he is certainly not living in accord with it. I guess I can say again here what I said uh, when we talked about this. One way of saying it is that in terms of the Ten Commandments, with the exception of the second, which he always felt was unworthy of a person, he would never speak of God that way. But with the exception of the second commandment, in those 30 years, there probably was not one that he did not break in some pretty serious way. So this is a man who is um, not living his faith, is far from God, um, filled with a desire to make a name for himself in the world and to win worldly glory and honor, dreams of romantic exploits and feats of arms. And, and then in battle uh, at age 30 in Pamplona, a cannonball passes between his legs and completely shatters the right leg. And this is the beginning of a long recovery, which will take the better part of a year. And there will be three surgeries on his leg before this is finished. And the point comes when he's well in every way, except that he can't use his leg. And there will be five months like this. And so the time hangs on his hands and he asks for reading. And he tells us that the reading he has in mind is the these novels of uh, knights and romances and so forth, kind of thing that's parodied in Don Quixote, for example, that he was used to reading. But his sister-in-law is God's instrument in his life now because she only has two books in the house. And one is an extensive um, set, four volumes of meditations on the life of Christ in the Gospels. And the other is a volume with lives of the saints. And somewhat unwillingly, but to pass the time, he begins to read these books. As he reads them, he starts to discover that there's another way of being heroic. There's another kind of greatness. So the greatness that he sees in St. Francis and St. Dominic, for example. And now he's wavering between two life projects. One, which is the return to the way he was living before. Uh, this takes the form of hours and hours and hours of dreaming about how he'll win the heart of a woman who in practice he's never even going to be able to meet. On the one hand, so there's a kind of a worldly thrust back to the former way of living, but now there's another set of thoughts that's arising. What if I were to seek greatness through imitating the saints? And he's going back and forth between these as the weeks and months go by on his convalescent bed. And then the moment of grace comes when, and he says it very simply, until one time his eyes were opened a little. And what he sees is 
while both sets of thoughts are engaging when he's thinking about them, living in the worldly way or living in the holy way like the saints. What happens after he lets the thoughts go and goes on with the day is very different in the one case than the other. After he's been thinking about the worldly project, his heart remains discontent, dry, um, feeling too empty, not able to find the nourishment and the peace that it needs. Whereas after he's been thinking about living like the saints and the day goes on, his heart remains content, happy, uh, filled with energy, uh, with a sense of rightness. And this has been going on, you know, for weeks and probably some months. And he doesn't even know it until this day, by God's grace, he sees it. And he reflects on this, he thinks about it, until he can see that a set of thoughts which are engaging in themselves, but always leave his heart empty, doesn't have the feel of where God is leading in his life. Another set of thoughts which is engaging in itself, but does leave his heart happy, that starts to have the feel of where God is leading in his life. And uh, he acts accordingly. He's set... And I guess a big factor is that he's convalescing. Because I remember it kind of hit me when you were <clears throat> telling us this in the retreat that it, this is such a man of action and just seemed like just charge ahead. I mean, I love the story you told. I didn't realize this when he got hit with a cannonball. The city he was helping to defend had surrendered. And he was in this fort in the city wall saying he wasn't going to surrender without some kind of fight. Yeah. I mean, I thought that says so much mm -hmm. about his character. And now he's like at this point of great self-reflection. I don't know, to me, it just seemed incongruent. You know, it didn't seem like us. I mean, to not, you know, to try to do something foolish, I think just to def be the only group here defending the city, you know, just shows impulsivity or something. But you know, not good at reflection. That's what it suggests to me. Mm -hmm. But I guess when you're you're laid up, you're forced to think. Well, I'm not sure so much um, that his desire to defend the castle uh -huh. was due to impulsivity. I mean, he certainly had a very fiery, you know, yeah. go at it kind right. of temperament. Right. But I think it, it probably comes from his having uh, imbibed this whole sense of what manhood means. Mm. And you don't give way to the, right. to your foe. You do stand your ground, yeah. you defend. And uh, even though the odds are against you, that doesn't change anything. You, you never simply surrender. Mm. So I think it's a conception of knighthood and um, the, the kind of um, thinking that he's been steeped in for so long wow. and a sense of what a man uh, of honor would do in that situation. Right. Now, let's keep in mind that um, the rest of the defenders in the castle they all knew that it was hopeless. Right. And even so, Ignatius convinced them to do, to do this. He was never too easy to resist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so he reflects and realizes this difference. And so, I, yeah, I guess he's looking for principles of a good life, a heroic life. And, I, you know, I always feel like with our young people today, too, it's like we kind of, with relativism, you kind of strip that away from them. A youth has a natural idealism. They want to live a good life. But, you know, if we hit them with a lot of, a lot of relativism where they're not, you know, there's no real right and wrong, it kind of strips away that kind of drama of life. And I guess that's maybe the linkage there for, for him was that 
he wanted to do something heroic, and now he sees a different set of values mm-hmm. for it. That's what uh, von Balthasar called the theodrama. Mm-hmm. You know that uh, there's an ego drama, which is my own way of looking at my own life, which is pretty limited. Um, but God puts us in the world in a specific time and place to be a part in his drama. That's the theodrama that mm-hmm. von Balthasar spoke about, and that's large and the horizons are great mm-hmm. and the heroism is, that's possible there is great. So Ignatius, you know, when he went through this uh, critical time, the reason he was able to get a sense of where God was leading and not leading was because although he wasn't living it, he had been raised solidly in his Catholic faith, which he never doubted, and which gave him the categories that he needed to understand his experience. So uh, today, if you don't have those categories, it's, I don't know if it's even possible, you know, to get a sense of where God is leading amid the welter of things. So that's why the church uh, speaks so much of evangelization, because that's where all of this has to start. Discernment is never the first thing in the spiritual life. Evangelization is just to know that there is a Savior who loves us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then after being evangelized, discipleship and catechesis, you know, learning more about the faith and then living it, let's say a life of prayer in the sacraments. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's doing that is ready for the teaching on discernment that Ignatius Mm -hmm. gives because they're already experiencing what he describes in those 14 rules. So you're right. We don't start the spiritual life with discernment. Mm -hmm. We start by meeting and coming to know Mm -hmm. our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Once we know him and, and live in that relationship, then discernment will be uh, extremely useful because it will help us, as it helped Ignatius, to make sense out of what's stirring in our hearts and thoughts. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about his, his prayer of examine. What is, you've written a book on it. <laughs> so tell us about it. Describe it to us. The classic practice in our Catholic spiritual tradition is the examination of conscience which we're invited to pray as part of an ongoing spiritual life. So that might be how many minutes? I don't even want to put a figure to it, but probably not too many minutes. Um, Probably toward the latter part of the day, maybe at the end of the day, when with the Lord, we look back over the experience of the day from the moral perspective. Uh, I'm pausing there because even the classic examination of conscience as Ignatius gave it to us, is more than simply looking for any faults or sins we may have committed in the day. We'll come right back to that. But nonetheless, uh, it does focus on anywhere in the course of the day. Let's say if I've been impatient, um, gotten angry unjustly towards someone, refused to help a person who really needed my help, and, and so forth. So that we, we see those things clearly. We ask the Lord's forgiveness, which he del- delights in giving. And then with the Lord, we plan how to do better the next day. Now, we do this uh, generally quite rapidly at the beginning of every Mass. The Church also has it in her night prayer. So this is simply a a part of the daily spiritual life, because as we read in the book of Proverbs, the just one falls seven times a day. That's me, that's you, that's all of us. So that's the classic examination of conscience, and it's a great help. There's a big difference between a spiritual life in which we're not even aware that we're doing these things, and one in which we're seeing it day by day so that we can 
grow with regard to these. Now, I don't think I'm uh, off base here when I say that probably most of us, and it might be maybe most of us listening right now, probably feel that we don't do the examination of conscience as well as we wish we did. And it's hard to feel really attracted to it, you know, because the sense that we have is that it's like having to face a spiritual uh, D minus, you know, or an F, you know, and that's not very comfortable. So it it tends to either be done quickly or um, even let go. In 1972, a Jesuit who just died a few years ago, uh, Father George Ashenbrenner, wrote an article on the examination of conscience in which he changed the language and he called it consciousness examine. Uh, he, he was really good at this. He could say things with a twist that just would catch your attention. And this article today we'd say went viral. It went everywhere, translated into all kinds of languages. And it became a staple for understanding the classic examination of conscience in a new and richer way. Now, when I wrote the book on it, I used my own vocabulary and I speak of it as the examine prayer, uh, which I like because that the title itself indicates that this is prayer. Basically, what Father Ashenbrenner said was, we can pray the classic examination of conscience as Ignatius gives it to us in his spiritual exercises. And there are the five steps. And the first step is the one that got lost somewhere along the way because we don't start at all by looking at our faults and sins. The beginning of the classic examination of conscience for Ignatius is to look back over the day to see the ways that God has loved us in the day, very concretely. You know, that email that I got just when I needed it, or um, in that time of prayer, uh, I was given the light that I needed. a wonderful conversation with my teenage daughter with whom there's been tension and so forth. So that we look back over the day to see what's really the most important thing in the day, which is what God has done in the day. What I've done matters, obviously, but what is primary is what God has done. And Ignatius experiences that God only does one thing, and that is to pour out gifts of love upon his sons and daughters. And that implies like a Thanksgiving we would make during that period? Mm Mm-hmm. So that's what happens as you see what God has done. That's where gratitude wells up, you know, and giving thanks, maybe praise. So I I simply summarize that first step with one word and call it gratitude, but thanksgiving will certainly be in there. That'll be the expression of the gratitude, you know, that we feel. Okay, then there was the moral level. So we're looking now at faults and sins. As we see them, we ask forgiveness and We plan to do better in the next day. So that's the classic examination of conscience. What Father Ashenbrenner said in 1972 is, we can incorporate into the examination of conscience together with Ignatius' words about it, his own practice, the way he was living this examine day by day. And what he was doing was looking throughout the day for his experience on the spiritual level. Now there we need to get into his rules for discernment of spirits because what we're looking for are joyful experiences of spiritual consolation when we feel God's closeness and energy for spiritual things and we get new light and 
and then spiritual desolation, which is exactly the opposite and is a tactic of the one Ignatius uh, most commonly calls the enemy. So that Satan and his associated fallen angels assisted. That's maybe not the best con way to use that word, but let's say uh, with the additional assistance of the wound of concupiscence left in us through original sin and then harmful influences around us in the world. We might as well get these two actors uh, clear. So that's the enemy. That's just the classic triad, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mm -hmm. And then <clears throat> the uh, good spirit, uh, by that Ignatius means God, the Holy Spirit, as he works in our hearts. He means the good angels. He means the if there's a wound in us as a legacy of original sin, much more. Through baptism, there is a power of grace uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, good influences around us in the world. Basically, good spirit for Ignatius means God and all of those influences which are from God and directed toward God. So these are the two actors. So there are three actors in the spiritual life. There is the individual, one of us, and then there is the enemy and the good spirit. Good spirit and enemy are both real. It's important to know how they act so that we can respond well. But I do want to say they're not equal. The enemy is sure of a higher order than we, but still the enemy is no more than a fallen creature. The good spirit is the infinite, eternal, infinitely loving, ever-present God and Savior. Mm -hmm. So Ignatius' whole teaching on discernment is the spirituality of hope, okay? Mm -hmm. All right. So what, what uh, Father Aschenbrenner said was we can incorporate into the review of the day after seeing the gifts of God's love, not only areas where we may have been at fault or even sinful in some ways, but also we can look at what was the enemy and the good spirit? What were they doing in the course of the day? In my experience, were there spiritual desolations from the enemy when I got discouraged? And how did I respond to that? Were, were there spiritual consolations in the course of the day in which God gave me energy and hope and, uh, did I live that well, you know, and, and uh, serve the Lord out of that? So that the classic examination of conscience, we now tend to use Ignatius' own word. It's just the actual Spanish word, examen in Spanish, and we pronounce it anglicized as examen, and we call it the examen prayer. And then, like, like looking at consolations, like any kind of lifting of our mind, heart to God that... Uh, increase of faith, hope, and love in us? Or? Very much so. So um, spiritual consolation is a heart-level experience. So it's an uplifting movement of the heart, joy, mm -hmm. gratitude, um, love, hope, and so mm -hmm. forth. And spiritual consolation is a, a gift from God. It's a grace. We would call it an actual grace if we wanted to be, you know, use the classic terminology. That is actual. What that means is that whereas sanctifying grace is an ongoing quality of the soul mm -hmm. that we receive through baptism, God at various points gives a particular grace that we need in this situation at this time. And so it's given. Uh, eventually it passes, but it leaves its blessing. Mm -hmm. So let's say... Um, here is a woman who has a doctor's appointment this afternoon, and she's going to get the results of the biopsy. Understandably, she's, she's, she's worried. She's afraid. She gets up in the morning, 
heads down through the corridor to uh, the kitchen to put on coffee and start the day. And as she walks down the corridor with this trouble in her heart, her eye catches the image of Jesus as the good shepherd that she's put on the wall there. And the words of Psalm 23 are there. Though I walk in a dark valley, I fear no evil. And uh, her heart is gently lifted up. And she finds herself saying, Lord, I know you'll be with me. Whatever happens, you'll see me through. That would be, these are beautiful experiences of spiritual consolation. In the moment that we need it, and in the way that we need, God gives these graces to us. And so the idea, so we have the, the thanksgiving, looking how God has blessed us. We have the moral examine of our faults and sins as forgiveness. And then we're looking at these like consolations, desolations, and then trying to, like purpose of amendment, we're trying to look at what were we doing when we had this consolation, and then try to repeat that. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, we've been kind of moving around the theme a little bit, so let's get a little more structured. So there are, I'm going to be speaking of the examine prayer now, and there are five steps to the examine prayer, and I'll summarize each with a single word. Gratitude, petition, review, forgiveness, renewal. Gratitude, petition, review, forgiveness, renewal. So let's say it's this evening and um, all the activity is over and I have some quiet time and I find a quiet place and maybe I sit down with the Lord to pray the examine prayer. How long is it going to be? Uh, only as long as we need it. We never force anything to make it longer. Ignatius would say we wouldn't go beyond 15 minutes in it, and it could be um, shorter than that. We just, the amount of time that we need. So I begin by being aware of the love with which the Lord is looking upon me. It's the perfect way for Ignatius to begin any time of prayer. The love that people in the gospel saw when they brought their physical ills or their moral struggles to him and were received with such compassion and goodness and healing. Then I look back over the day, go back to the morning in my mind's eye to see the main things that I did. And what I'm looking for are the ways in which God has loved me and blessed me through those days. So uh, maybe I prayed morning prayer from the Liturgy of the Hours. Let's say uh, a person uses the short version of this in the monthly Magnificat and loves it. You pray one psalm, some invocations. And uh, looking back, the person recognizes that that psalm really blessed me this morning. It was exactly the prayer that I needed. It expressed what my heart was feeling. And I rose from that prayer fe feeling more ready for the day. And so concrete gift of God's grace in the day. We see it, we recognize it. We express our gratitude to the Lord for that. And then let's say um, further into the morning, an email came, which uh, the person really needed and was waiting for. And it was helpful in the way the person needed. Another gift for which to, to thank the Lord. And so on, very concretely through the hours of the day. Now, this is not, you know, um, scrutinizing into the minutiae of every day. It's a peaceful glance back over the day. You know what I'd say, Father? In my own practice of the examine prayer, 
this was the part of it that first began to really draw me. Because you know how we can get to the end of the day and the feeling is kind of gray. It really hasn't been a very good day. And then you break out of the current feeling and you go back to the beginning of the day and you start to see the blessings that have filled the day. And I began to like this because it would lift that end of day grayness that could be there sometimes as you got a much better sense of how God had been working uh, in the day. When we've done that, <coughs> Ignatius invites us just gently, whatever words you want from your heart, to ask the Lord now grace to review your own spiritual experience of the day. And that moves us into the third step, which is the review. And there we're looking both on the moral and the spiritual level. And we're not sifting these out, let's say doing first the moral level, then the level of discernment. We just look back over the day. And if there have been any areas of impatience or um, whatever it might be, for which we uh, want to ask the Lord's forgiveness, we'll note those. But we'll also be looking to see where there are experiences of spiritual consolation and spiritual desolation in the day. So for example, let's say as I go back over the day, uh, there's an email that um, came from someone with whom there'd been some tension for some time. And I had taken the initiative the preceding day, let's say, maybe overcoming some resistance to send a nice email to this person. Let's say it's the person's birthday or something. And as I went through my email uh, today, there was a warm email back from that person. And I sensed that both of us knew that in receiving and sending this email, we were healing a tension between us. And my heart lifted up in gratitude to the Lord for that. So reverently, because this is a person's spiritual experience, what I'm experiencing there is spiritual consolation. Now I can just go right by that, or in the examine, I can stop and look at that and say, you know, if reaching out this way to this person with just a simple email did this much good, maybe there are other people with whom I could do something similar and reach out, remember a significant anniversary or, or a birthday in a way that would bring joy into others' hearts. So you can see, if a person prays the examine day by day, this is very much on the level of ordinary daily spiritual experience, which is so important precisely because all of life almost, except for a few peak moments, is lived on this level. So now I'm starting, because I prayed the examine, I'm starting to recognize other people who would be glad to hear from me. All right, multiply that by you know, a, a, a consolation here, a consolation there. And you can see a tapestry being woven of growth in the spiritual life. In terms of spiritual desolation, um, let's say that uh, um, I've been helping out in this group in the parish. It's a weekly group, and I've been doing it for a couple of years, and uh, I really enjoy it. I find it fruitful. It helps me in my spiritual life. But uh, let's say that um, there was a tense conversation in my family. Well, let's say the teenage daughter again, and it didn't resolve well, and that's kind of discouraging for me. There's also a tension at work right now that's weighing upon me. So these are just sort of natural things that we go through in life, but they're uh, discouraging. They don't stop me from living my life. 
But there's a vulnerability there to start feeling like that on my in my spiritual life as well. And maybe I'm finding it harder to pray and to desire prayer. Maybe even I'm letting a bit of it go. And as this is happening, um, I'm getting ready to go down to the parish for the group again tonight. And something in me starts to say, I don't know, maybe I've given all that I can to this group. Maybe it's time to let the pastor know that uh, I'll be pulling out of the group. Now, if this person does not review this experience and simply follows what's said, that might well be the shutting of a door to a lot of grace and growth and assistance to others. If the person knows Ignatius's rules and recognizes, okay, I'm in spiritual desolation when I'm thinking about this. And Ignatius in his classic rule five says, just don't ever make changes in your spiritual life when you're in desolation. Because I reviewed that in my examine tonight, I can see clearly that this is not the time for me to leave the group. This is the time for me is to get through the spiritual desolation. And then I know that I shouldn't make those changes. Okay. So you, that you can see that if we're doing this day by day, uh, the kind of growth that's going to come. The fourth step then is I bring this to the Lord. Can I ask you one question? Um, sure. How do we distinguish um, like just feelings that, you know, our feelings can be so up and down and and I guess you're making a distinction between like a spiritual consolation. It's not merely a feeling. There's a real movement upwards towards God, right? That um, because I'm trying to think of an example, but you know, sometimes we feel better. We have a powerful experience, or it's not necessarily spiritual. You know, to make that is there a distinction? Sure. Yeah. So uh, let's call that spiritual and then playing off of Ignatius word spiritual I'll you can describe the other kind of consolation as non-spiritual and this works for desolation as well there is spiritual and non-spiritual desolation so in the example that I used of the woman walking down the corridor and uh, anxious and then seeing Psalm 23 and her heart lifts up you can see that there's an uplifting movement of the heart there and but you can also also see it's very much on the spiritual level. It's on the level of faith and her relationship with God. That's what Ignatius means by spiritual consolation. We can also have um, wonderful experiences of, con of consolation, that is uplift of the heart, simply on the natural level or the non-spiritual level. So you, um, you enjoy a meal with your family mm -hmm. or with a friend. Uh, you get out and your heart lifts up as you see the beauties of nature. You put on some beautiful music and you just feel better. You get some exercise and you feel better and so forth. There's a whole range of a very healthy, non-spiritual consolations, which God intends that we enjoy and that we experience in life. Um, so, but they're different. All right. One is on the natural level and the other is on the spiritual or the supernatural level. And Ignatius in the rules is speaking about the spiritual level. Yeah. And I guess like if you have a non-spiritual desolation, you look towards maybe a non-spiritual solution, right? To like if I'm exhausted or maybe you need to get some rest. I'm exhausted. I feel terrible. I need some rest. Or... 
I'm anxious. I've just been through something stressful. Maybe go take a walk or something. Absolutely. And the best of all ways to deal with any of this is to use both the natural or non-spiritual means and the spiritual means together Mm. so that you're praying. um, You know, maybe you go down to mass, you open the Bible, you know, all the, the spiritual means that we have but also the human ones. So if I'm overtired, yeah, obviously that means rest. Mm -hmm. If I'm a little discouraged or depressed by the tension with this fellow worker, there may be ways to work with that, you know, and I can learn more about that and and grow in dealing with that. The ideal is to be using healthy, non-spiritual, just natural remedies, Mm -hmm. and then to be using the spiritual tools as well. The way I'd say it is the eagle flies with two wings. When you're using both the spiritual and non-spiritual remedies together, you see beautiful things. And I've seen this many times over the years. And sometimes more growth than you'd ever think possible can happen when we're doing that. And so like that rule about not making changes, like if you're in spiritual desolation, if you're in non-spiritual desolation... <laughs> You might need to make changes, right? If you're completely burned out, you need a break, you need a vacation. Um, would that be correct to say? Uh, no. Rule five in the rules is on yeah. the spiritual level, and okay. there's no exception to it. Yeah. If you know you're in spiritual desolation mm-hmm. and you're thinking of changing anything that you'd planned in your spiritual life, I was going to go on that retreat. Yeah. I was going to join the faith formation group in the parish. I'm going to pray the rosary daily, and I've been doing it. I'm going to get to confession next Saturday, and and so forth. Uh, you never change anything that you'd planned in your spiritual life when you know you are, are in the discouragement and struggle of spiritual desolation. I hope that our listeners, if, uh, if you take anything from what we've said, please don't forget Rule 5, because Rule 5 will get you safely through almost any darkness you may experience. If you know you are in the discouragement of spiritual desolation, don't make changes to anything in your spiritual life. You know, Father, I can't tell you how many bad decisions I have not made because of Rule 5. I'm Uh deeply grateful to it in my own life. Now, that's often going to be the the same on the natural or non-spiritual level as well. So, for example, uh, here's a woman who's battling with depression. And wisely, she's seeing a counselor, and she comes to the counselor one day and says, I think I'm going to quit my job and move. All right, the counselor is likely to say something like, "Uh, you know, this might not be the best time for you to make changes like that. Let's get through the depression, and then we can revisit Mm -hmm. that. So very often, this is going to work on the non-spiritual level as well. But if the cause of the exhaustion is lack of sleep, well, then the remedy is obvious. Okay, and then you said forgiveness was the next point. Uh, After we have reviewed the spiritual experience of the day, then as we need it, uh, we'll ask the Lord for forgiveness. Um, There so much could be said about forgiveness. Uh, Here's one way of presenting it. Uh, I'll ask this of any of our listeners. Which chapter in the four Gospels has the word joy the most times in it? And uh, the answer to that is Luke chapter 15, which is the three parables of forgiveness. 
the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. It's just there is more rejoicing in heaven, etc. The more we come to understand forgiveness in truly in a truly Christian way, that is a Christ-centered way, uh, the more joyful the experience becomes for us. So we ask uh, God's forgiveness if we need it. And then finally, thus far the examine has looked back over the day. In its final step, which I call renewal, it now looks forward to the next day. In the light of what we've seen, most of us, as the day is ending, we have at least some general sense of what the next day will bring. You know, it will be here, we'll do this, and so forth. And um, we plan with the Lord how to live that. This was the second step, actually, of the examine that I really came to like. So let's say, for example, as I've looked back over the day, I've recognized that I've been a little cold towards someone with whom I live or work because I really, you know, I, maybe I have something against this person or there's just been some struggle. And I've seen that and I don't want to live on that level. I want to live my relationships on a Christ-centered level. Love is patient, love is kind, and all that Paul says about love. So in my fifth step of the examine, as I look to the next day and recognize that I'm going to be spending some time with that person, with the Lord I'll be planning on how to be more loving in my relationship with the person the next time. So as I said earlier, you can see that if you pray the examine, um, you, you know, you, you'll always be going forward. There's um, a saying that um, about faith, that faith is like a pilgrim's staff. The pilgrim doesn't stand still. The pilgrim journeys on. And that is really what the uh, examine prayer is like. It's the prayer of growth, of uh, growing insight and discernment and understanding of our spiritual experience. And it becomes the prayer uh, that moves us forward in the spiritual life, which is a great thing. And talking about forgiveness, I remember your conferences. I don't remember how you said it, but basically it was like forgiveness limits the evil in our life and something like that. I remember Pope Francis saying that about mercy, that it's, uh, it's the solution to evil, that, you know, God's mercy. And I'll never forget, he gave the most beautiful address. I remember he was visiting Israel and Jerusalem and he went to the Holocaust Memorial, I think, and he, he gave this reflection about, you know, Adam and Eve after the sin and then God calling out, you know, where are you? And then Pope Francis added, and what evil have you done? Mm -hmm. And he, and he goes on to say, you know, is there any limit to the evil that mankind's, he's at the Holocaust Memorial, right? So is there any limit to this? And he goes on to talk about mercy as being the limit. And it, it hit me, it finally hit me only recently <laughs> that, that he, like going to confession and uh, it, it, it limits the evil in my own life. It's like, you know, this, Yes, we're given absolution, forgiveness, but also it, like it, it arrests that whatever path I was on there. And now we, most of us, I think, fall back into our old sins. But it, at least for that moment, you know, I'm restarting, and that evil is stopped. And I thought 
that's no small thing you know, no. in our lives, you know. It is true what you say about the sacrament of confession, that um, as we receive mercy, we become more merciful ourselves, I think, toward others. Um, it's such a good thing. You know, the sacrament of confession has come to mean more and more to me as the years go by. I really love that feeling of, I don't know what you'd call it, a sort of lightness, you know, after the, the sacrament. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I've found, you know, sometimes when you're preparing for confession, maybe it feels a little heavy. Oh, there's this, and, you know, you know, the Lord will be disappointed with me and so on. And it can feel hard to say this in, to the priest, you know. And then the thought uh, more and more frequently just comes to me now, Lord, you're the one that I'm confessing to, and you love me, and you know me. And uh, it just simplifies the whole thing, you know, when you're saying what you have to say to the one who, who so deeply loves you like that. So that, that really makes a difference. Uh, receiving mercy in that way uh, really does change our hearts. Yeah. And this, the, the fifth step, you described it as a renewal in our life. And what about, like, okay, we can make some good resolutions uh, but how do you follow through with them? <laughs> Not just, you know, that I, I was thinking about it during the conferences. I, I thought maybe one way is usually I fail in my resolutions when I'm in spiritual desolation. It's like I got to stay like a couple of boxcars away from the fall, so to speak, in my life, you know. And it almost gets to be too late if I'm in that moment that I have whatever temptation or I want to break the resolution, that I need to take care of that desolation, that feeling, whatever, that movement in me. Is that true? Yeah, that's why these rules for discernment, these 14 rules of St. Ignatius, can make such a huge difference in our spiritual life. I know, as I said, uh, during the conferences, I've been teaching them to people now for close to 40 years and of course writing the books on them and you know digitally uh, presenting them what has driven all of this is people's desire for it i'll just tell you early on i gave a retreat to a group of people and this was an 8 day retreat small group and every morning i would give a half hour conference and we went through these 14 rules over the eight days and there was something electric happened there because we all knew i knew that in the transmitting of this material these rules and they knew that in the receiving of it something really special and important had happened and it led to my giving many more groups to other groups of that particular movement and that's been the way it's been ever since. Usually when people learn them, uh, they say things like, how come nobody ever told me about this before? Or I wish I'd known this 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, which I love when people say that because that means it's really hitting home now. It, you know, they're really taking it to heart. So if we say anything here, I would warmly encourage anyone listening, please learn these 14 rules. If you already know them, you know why I say that. If you don't know them, uh, I can promise you that you will experience why I'm saying that now. 
Please use the resources, learn these rules, and you will love what will happen in your spiritual life. All right. right. Now, you know, one thing struck me about the retreat, too, is um, you talked about um, Jesus being in Nazareth and, and having and, and seeing, you know, the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, the anointed one, that he's come to set the prisoners free, the captives free. And, and it struck me the way you said it, that it's, uh, I mean, he wants us to be free and grow and not be held back by our faults and sins and things and to make progress in the spiritual life. To really believe that, because that's a tactic right of the enemy, that is to say it's hopeless, uh, you're, you're unique, you know, and um, you're a bad person, you're never going to change. But that was powerful, you know, that Jesus has come to set the captives free. Can you tell us about that again? Sure. Well, I'll repeat something I said in the conferences, and that is it's my conviction now after a good many years of working with people and these rules of Ignatius, that for most dedicated people, and that's generally going to include anyone listening to this conversation, you wouldn't be listening if you weren't taking the spiritual life to heart. For most dedicated people, for most of the way on the spiritual journey, the real obstacle is spiritual desolation. When we get discouraged, disheartened, um, don't have a lot of hope that we're ever really going to grow in the spiritual life. And, of course, there are a lot of vulnerabilities to spiritual desolation today as we look at the culture around us and all that's happening in the world. So that this teaching is becoming increasingly important in a way I could not have foreseen when I first began. Uh, it, it's perennially important, but it is um, important in a contemporary way that is all its own at this particular time. So as you learn about this and you learn how to recognize spiritual desolation when you're experiencing it, something else I said in the talks, there's no shame in experiencing spiritual desolation. We all do at various times. It's just what happens in living the spiritual life in a fallen but redeemed and loved world. So there's no shame and no surprise that we experience this kind of discouragement in the spiritual life from time to time. And if you go through the rules, you'll see Ignatius will address the question why a God who loves us permits that to happen. Um, because if we go through it well and resist it, we're actually growing stronger in the spiritual life. So as I say, a teaching that equips us to be aware of and understand when we're in spiritual desolation, to name it for what it is, discouraging lies of the enemy, and that above all gives us tools for rejecting it is one of the greatest gifts I think that God gave to the church through Ignatius for the daily spiritual life. Really the greatest gift I think that the Spirit gave through Ignatius to those who live the daily spiritual life. So that's why uh, kind of from my heart I'd say please learn the rules. You'll love it. And the rejecting is the part about petitioning the Lord and meditation, the examine prayer, and doing some penance or something. It, it, it is that. It is um, to be comprehensive. It's everything that Ignatius says in rules from rules 5 to 14, mm -hmm. the final 10 rules. All of that is essentially about 
giving us tool after tool after tool after tool to be aware of, name, and reject spiritual desolation so that we are able to live in the freedom for which Christ set us free. Yeah, Jesus did not come that we should be held captive by these discouraging lies of the enemy. He came to set us free. So, and it's more than we can get into here, but as you learn rules five uh, all the way through 14, you'll realize that I'm pretty well equipped to deal with this. Yeah. And one last thing, um, I was struck to a couple of things that, yeah, you know, we're called to, to stand firm against these temptations and maybe this desolation that the enemy is trying to wreak upon us um, and to resist bravely in the beginning, especially right before they get moving in our lives and, and to have that confidence and and maybe they even, as you mentioned, I guess you might say like the go bag, so to speak, they have in these movies where, you know, they say you've got to flee the house or whatever, you know, you grab this stuff, but that, you know, maybe there's certain things that inspire you in scripture passages or a saint's quote or something. Um, but to believe that God's given you that sufficient grace that you don't have to fall back into this. That's right. You know, that's Ignatius Rule 7. When you're battling with spiritual desolation and the desolation is trying to make you believe you're too weak, you can't resist, you're going to give in, you're going to let your prayer go, you're going to turn to things that aren't the best for you and so on. When the desolation is clamoring to, in your ears spiritually to say you're too weak, you can't do it, remember that you can do it. Because even though you don't feel it, course you're in desolation it, it's on the heavy side effectively even though you don't feel it with the certitude of faith you know that God always is giving you all the grace that you need to get safely through the desolation there is a, a, a level of God's grace at work in us that is so deep that no desolation can ever touch it and that's what Ignatius invites us to think about call to mind right in the struggle against desolation. Because if you know that you can get through it without giving in, you're much more likely to do it, you know. And you tell the wonderful story. It helps to, to realize that, hey, I, I've been here before. I've been here before. We've had different trials in our life that God has seen us through. Yeah. You know, it's not my first rodeo here. <laughs> so that's a piece of Ignatius's Rule 6, yeah. yeah. You were mentioning that the four spiritual tools that he applies specifically to resisting spiritual desolation and one of them is meditation and uh, as i said yeah in the talk for me that phrase i've been here before which came to my heart in a time of spiritual desolation some years ago has been a help to me ever since because what it tells me is in the present desolation i've been here before and you've always seen me safely through them you'll, you'll get me safely through this one too so it really is helpful if we each have our personal points of meditation like that. Yeah. And the other one that, that really rang true to me too is you quoted Theoden from Lord of the Rings who had been listening to Wormtongue and he was convincing him of there's no hope, the hopelessness of Saruman or whatever that's overcoming the world. And when he's rescued, he goes outside, he says... 
I see it's not as dark out here or something to that. Not as dark as I thought. And I thought, man, that is a, that's a strong tactic of the enemy. Because I do that. You know, it's like I'll, I'll start focusing on the negative or the pessimistic view. And it's like I make it much worse. And I don't even know if it's that bad yet. You know, and but it's just a simple line that said it's, you know, it's not as dark as I thought. Well, that's one indication of what happens when we start living the wisdom of these rules, you know. Mm -hmm. And we'll find out that it's never dark the way spiritual desolation wants us to believe. Spiritual desolation, when we're discouraged, so I'm at my desk at 9 p.m. this evening. The day has not been entirely easy, and I'm feeling discouraged. And uh, normally at this time, uh, let's say I read from Scripture for 10, 15 minutes, and make an exam and that's how I end the day and nothing in me feels God's closeness there's no energy to want to pray and so forth what the desolation will try to do if we're not aware of what's going on we're not discerning is to say you know what you're feeling now it's the way it's going to be the, the desolation will attempt to predict our spiritual future to us and it will always be dark so you take off the dark sunglasses of spiritual desolation and you find out, like the king, it, it isn't as dark as I thought. Yeah. yeah. And last question. Um, you mentioned on the gratitude part about, we look at, you know, we're giving thanks to God for how he's maybe blessed us, but maybe more importantly to look at how he's loved us. And I, I think that's such a challenge for all of us to believe that God really does love me and how everything changes if we have experienced that and really believe in that. It just seemed like that really, like a person in love, right? They see the world different. Um, talk about how, how do we come to that belief? Well, maybe I can do that through sharing uh, a story that uh, the woman involved has given me permission to share. Um, preface it by saying that the examine can be almost uniquely valuable in helping us to grow in knowing that we're loved by God. Because as you see gift after gift after gift very concretely that God is giving you every day, and you see the love of the giver through that, you grow in the awareness of how deeply you, you are loved. You are loved that way, but it's one thing when we don't know it and a very different thing when we do know it. Well, this was a woman who had been through about the worst things um, that a woman can ever go through in life and on a really traumatic level and had gone through uh, a long, painful uh, recovery with uh, times in the hospital and so forth. And she was very slowly, she was very slowly uh, getting her life together. At this point, she was able uh, to, to keep a simple job and have her own apartment and so forth. Well, she uh, she wasn't a Catholic, but she um, it's kind of a interesting thing how she even came to our church. She was an artist, and this was the time when angels were sort of in vogue, and she wanted to learn more about angels because she wanted to paint them. And a friend said, uh, well, Catholics are into that sort of thing, and uh, gave her the address of our church, and I wound up meeting with her. But what happened was uh, our church there in Boston is a Eucharistic shrine, and she walked through the church to get to my office, 
had no idea what was happening there, but was just really struck by the peace that she felt there. And she began coming uh, there and eventually, maybe about five years later, entered the Catholic Church. So she, this was when I was writing the book on the examine prayer, and somehow she heard about this examine prayer and she wanted to start praying it. So what I suggested to her very concretely was focus on the first step for a while. You know, just uh, gratitude to God for his gifts. And this is a woman who didn't have a lot to be grateful for, you know, given what she'd been through. So uh, we made it very concrete. She got a notebook and I asked her if she could write down every day three things for which she was grateful. And she was doing this. And then she would ask me, well, I wrote down today that the sun came up. Is that all right? Yeah, absolutely. I wrote down today that I got to work on time. Is that all right? Absolutely. And this went on, I, I don't remember how long, probably the better part of a year at least. And uh, one day she came to talk about it. She was deeply moved. And uh, she said, as she saw something that God had done in her life, um, she just found herself deeply grateful. And I said to her, what does that tell you about how God sees you? And she said, it means that he loves me. It means that he's proud of me. And then she began to cry. And she said, that's the first time in my life I've ever said those two sentences. That's where it can lead, you know, when we begin to realize uh, that we really are loved. The difference is when we see it, when we know who the giver is and we see the love and it's every day. And what will happen as you pray the exam and you'll just see more and more uh, every day. So that's the power of that first step. Oftentimes I'll say to people when they want to begin to pray the exam and I'll say, why don't you just start with the first step for a while? And uh, people love that, you know, it's beautiful just to know that I'm loved. For Ignatius, this is a constant pattern in him. You never look at your own faults and failures until you have first looked at how infinitely loved you are by God. That's always mm -hmm. his pattern, which is why the examen starts with this first step of gratitude, looking back over the day that way. And you're, you're very faithful to journaling, you mentioned. Do you use a certain template for that or...? No, I, um, yeah, I am a writer and writing helps me and not only me, obviously many people keep right. journals. Uh, I don't write extensively unless there are times when I, when there's something important and maybe I'm getting a hold of it, I may write uh, a little bit more, but most of the time, well, also sometimes when I'm all knotted up and I can't make sense out of it and I find that just by writing out what I'm feeling. Right. Usually by the other end of having written that, I'm beginning to feel more peace and have a little more clarity with regard to it. But uh, otherwise, I may only write, you know, a, a sentence or two, and I don't even bother with full sentences, you know, and I use abbreviations that I'm familiar with. So, um, but it does help me a lot. It helps me even as I write it. And what helps is when I look back over it, you know, maybe I'll say, this really helped me in prayer today. I should continue to do this. And the next day when I um, am there in chapel to begin my prayer, I look at what I wrote the day before and I can start to apply it, you know. And then if, if someone would like uh, more resources, what would you recommend? Well, I suppose it's 
obvious that I'll mention the things that I've done. Actually, the book that I did on the examine uh, was the first book that's been done on it. Since then, others have written books on it. So there are maybe another three books or so. My book is called The Examine Prayer, and it's available anywhere books are available, online or bookstores. Um, And then I've done a series of podcasts that'll take you through the steps of the examine. And that's available on uh, a website, discerninghearts.com, discerninghearts.com, and also the Discerning Hearts app, which you can just get through the app store on your phone. These are free resources. And if you do download the Discerning Hearts app, let's say, and you tap on spiritual formation, a list of speakers will come up. You'll see me tap on that, Mm -hmm. and it will send you to the various podcasts that I've done there. And one of them is called The Daily Examine, which will take you through. I think it's eight half-hour podcasts that will take you through that. And then uh, if you're a visual learner, I did this as a series on EWTN. And uh, the DVD is called Finding God in All Things, which is where the examine leads. Mm -hmm. And that DVD and uh, really all of these resources, that DVD is available through the uh, EWTN Religious Catalog, as are some of the books and everything is available through my own website, which is just fr for Father Fr Timothy Gallagher.org. Well, Father, thank you so much for the podcast and for the great retreat you gave us this year. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.